Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. I am Seth Leapson. Our phone number is 602-508-0960-602-5080-960. We got David Dahl producing today. Thank you, David. Bill will be back tomorrow. Got my new headset, earphones here. Man, it's nice to hear. <laughs> For the past couple of days, I've been kind of struggling with a faulty pair. So we got the new ones going here, and it's it's wonderful. We have for some months now been speaking not only of an unleashed and exploding youth mental health crisis, but also an adult one, an adult one that seems to get buried in our attention, rightly prioritized as it is on our youth. And yet we are missing the forest for the trees. If what took place in Nashville and all the commentary around it is shocking, you're lost in the trees. Let's get the ground map first. Borrowing from the New York Times, in 2021, nearly 60% of teenage girls reported feeling persistent sadness. Overall, 44% of teenagers reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. According to the Washington Post, that's an increase from 26% in 2009, practically doubling. These are the familiar numbers, the scary uptick that has spawned soul-searching across the length and breadth of this land. That same year, a 44% of teenagers reported suffering from serious sadness, according to the CDC. 41.5% of adults reported recent symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, an increase from an already high baseline of 36.5% just months before. Now, on top of this, add, as we learned from the Wall Street Journal on Monday, Positive views of religion, church attendance, and patriotism are at all-time lows. What we or I used to call our forces of social composition. Now, on top of this, add, again, from the New York Times, when we think about children and screens, let's also consider the relationship between adults and their TVs and smartphones. Watch cable news, where grandparents get their news, and you'll see a discourse dominated by fear and anger. If you spend any time at all on political Twitter or absorb the discourse on political Facebook posts, you'll quickly see a level of vicious personal attacks that differ little from the most extreme personal bullying a person can experience in middle school or high school. Now, on top of this, add how children are spending more time with their parents than at any time in recent memory. As Peter Gray wrote last year in Psychology Today, the increase and teen suffering has occurred during a period in which young people have been subjected to ever-increasing amounts of time being supervised, directed, and protected by adults. He argues that the pressure and continuous monitoring and judgments from adults coupled with the loss of freedom to follow their own interests and solve their own problems results in anxiety, depression, and general dissatisfaction with life. 
And if we're concerned about continuous monitoring, COVID only compounded the problem. And if we're concerned with parents who themselves are suffering psychologically, cooping their children up with them is only to train the children in dysfunction. All of this is creating the confusing forest we now find ourselves in, a forest where in a small town, a young man can walk around doped up on drugs, carrying bags of dead cats, and nobody does or says anything until he shoots up a school in a town called Uvalde. Or we can look at what took place in Nashville this past week and all the commentary around it, as if the actus reus wasn't shocking enough in and of itself. Did we think locking people up, disrupting all their social habits and practices, and taking away everything from the church to the gym to the 12-step meetings to preventing family and holiday gatherings and weddings and schools for two years or more would have no consequences? Too many did, and they did so only having dispensed with not only every psychology book and piece of learning and wisdom passed down over the course of the past two or three generations, but every understanding of human nature. Just over 100 years ago, writing about the French Revolution, Alexis de Tocqueville, who understood America better than many Americans, wrote the following, quote, When men are no longer bound together by caste, class, corporate or family ties, they are only too prone to give their whole thoughts to their private interest and to wrap themselves up in a narrow individuality in which public virtue is stifled. Despotism does not combat this tendency. On the contrary, it renders it irresistible, for it deprives citizens of all common passions, mutual necessities, need of common understanding, opportunity for combined action. It ripens them, so to speak, in private life. They had a tendency to hold themselves aloof from each other. It isolates them. They looked coldly on each other. It freezes their souls. In societies of this stamp, he concluded, in which there are no fixed landmarks, every man is constantly spurred on by a desire to rise in a fear of falling, close quote. Common passions, mutual necessities, common understandings, forces of composition, one might say, forces that convert to decomposition, decomposition when humans abandon this for isolation. The isolation, by the way, need not exclusively be physical. Think of the atomization taking place by segregating society or resegregating society by race or finding new ways to segregate by sex, or think of how we've redefined norms of behavior, norms from the word normal, behavior as in how we comport and conduct ourselves. We've defined an awful lot of deviancy down over the past several years, and we've excused and defended violence, especially if it perpetrated as a racial grievance on behalf of a racial cause. We've defined down violent crimes and come to expect less and less of our citizenry to comport itself to the laws and manners most of us adopt, accept, and consider to be the rules of civilized life. We blame violence on systems, and in so doing, we remove individual accountability in order to excuse violence by blaming environmental or population-wide guilt. And where that system-wide or collective guilt is non-extant, we invent it. And then we do one other thing. We remove individual responsibility. Kylie Griswold at The Federalist rounds up some of the headlines about Nashville from yesterday to put a lot of this into sharp relief. Reuters, quote, former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville shooting, close quote. That's how Reuters, Reuters characterized the mass murder 
of Christian school students by a transgender killer on social media on Tuesday, drawing on the shooter's distant past rather than her radical present to pretend, to pretend Christians were the perpetrators rather than the victims. Newsweek headline, quote, Drag shows and gender-affirming care for minors were banned in Tennessee this month while assault weapons remain legal, close quote. There's so much wrong with this, it's hard to know where to begin, perhaps starting with what of the other states that pass similar laws. And are they now to be open for hunting season against humans as well because they had this coming? And as Griswold put it, the headline, of course, doesn't mention the fact that the severe mental illness Tennessee Republicans are seeking to protect children from is the same type the clearly disturbed killer embraced. And you know what else is banned in Tennessee, by the way? Murder. Then there's this farrago of mainstream media headlines. The New York Times, quote, heavily armed assailant kills six at school in Nashville. The Washington Post, six slain in shooting at Nashville school. The Wall Street Journal, six shot dead in Nashville elementary school. Chicago Tribune, six, six dead in shooting at Nashville school. Not a single headline says the word Christian, transgender, or targeted. NBC News, try this headline. Fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooter's identity. Fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooter's gender identity. In other words, ignore the violence that did just take several lives and focus on a prediction that hasn't come and in a sane world will not come true. That is, the focus is on something that hasn't happened and likely will not happen but for the unmoored and untethered hysteria or anxiety that is out of sync with reality and sanity in the first place. As Griswold put it, NBC News focused on the self-obsessed worries of unrelated transgender people. And right here in Arizona, the press secretary to Katie Hobbs, Governor Katie Hobbs, posted a tweet hours after the deadly Nashville shooting on Monday. It was a video of a woman with a gun in each hand under the text, Us when we see transphobes. This press secretary used to be the communications director for the Arizona Senate Democrats when they issued a tweet quoting one Asada Shakur, a terrorist wanted by the FBI, on the lam in Cuba for killing cops with $1 million reward offered for her arrest. This comms director justified using the quote back then and was until, as I said today, Katie Hobbs' press secretary tweeting out a call to political violence. She's resigned, and to this moment, probably still has no idea what the problem was or is. Just as it took the Democratic Party so long to understand here in Arizona, Arizona why their F the fourth party in Tucson last year was, shall we say, a problem. Self-obsession, self-righteousness, and distorted views of reality, also known as delusion, being part of the wholesale problem in the first place, where individual thoughts, all or any of them, are almost always given tribute and respect over and against reality or truth, where my truth is more important than the truth and where by any means necessary has replaced the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And this is forest too many are missing for the trees of their obsessions and anxieties they think have no broader consequences. It's well past time to prevent forest fires here. Once again, I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I was just uh, forwarded this um, piece in the Washington Examiner by the editor-in-chief there, uh, Hugo Gurdon. He uh, he was writing on the Wall Street uh, Journal poll that showed that we talked about on Monday that showed um, patriotism, faith, and children, uh, views of those three things in sharp decline. Um, and what the author here, what Mr. Gordon is saying is um, none of this was surprising to him. Uh, they seemed predictable and even inevitable. How could patriotism not be in sharp retreat under the left's daily assault on America? Who at political demonstrations chants and holds up signs that read America was never great? Do you remember the most popular governor in America before he was forced out of office? said that on cable television. But it's left-wingers. Who teaches a venomous and fabricated history of this country insisting that the raison d'etre of America was slavery? The left, as represented by the New York Times and its dubious 1619 project. Who sows division and hopelessness in schools by teaching children that if they are white, they are irredeemable racists, and if they are black, they are victims without agency in their own future? The left who moves at every opportunity to interfere and instruct ordinary people what they may and may not do, how they may and may not live, what they may and may not think. It is a panoply of enervating bossiness that seeks to control everything from how people invest their savings to how they cook their meals. No more gas stoves and how they wash their laundry. People who are taught by an arrogant governing and a opinion-forming class that encompasses much of our major institutions, from the president and his party to big businesses, schools, and universities, plus most of the news and entertainment media, learn every day that their country is not and never really was a place to thrive, enjoy freedom, or pursue happiness, as the Declaration of Independence made clear was the reason for America. I'll add one other institution, professional athletic associations, who got in on the who got in on the game as the players made salaries most people would be envious of in a job most people only wish could be their profession. They are seeing their own nation and culture being saturated in self-doubt and their government less and less capable of or willing to exercise any sort of leadership that made this country great. It becomes harder and harder to see America as a shining city on a hill and a light onto other nations. So no, it is no surprise that Americans' support for their own country in patriotism is collapsing. It is no surprise that religion, which is constantly assailed as formalized bigotry and its traditional teaching, is fading. It is no surprise that more and more people, particularly those of child-rearing age, should wonder what the point is of bringing a new generation into such a benighted and pointless nation. It is no surprise, but it is a calamity. The nation is where it is because it has been attacked from within by people of a political persuasion that for generations has paid only hypocritical lip service, if that, to being on America's side. Quick story. I may have shared it with you before, but it's been a while. I was uh, on vacation and uh, was with a um, with a uh, family member of, of a friend, and this person being very liberal and steeped in the general liberal culture was having lunch with me and said, Seth, are, do you consider yourself a patriot? Kind of like that. Do you consider yourself a patriot? And I kind of answered it the way I think anyone would have answered it, but 
was a surprise to this person. I said, well, I consider myself one, don't you? And she kind of went silent because it had never occurred to her, if you think about it in those terms of what a patriot really is, is that this is not a partisan thing. Who wouldn't want to be someone who considers themselves to be in love with or have a love affair with or just simply loves their country? It had been so ingrained in this person's mind, and I think it's representative of a tremendous number of people of the liberal mindset, that patriotism or the love of America is a partisan thing, and it is supposed to be a matter of democratic catechism to simply not be a patriot. Now, the odd travel here is, the odd journey, the odd distance, is that I well remember the major political campaigns in the 1980s were Democrats using the talking point that Republicans should not be questioning the Democrats' patriotism, that they took offense when Republicans sort of would veiledly question the patriotism of a Democrat. Democrats wanted to be considered as patriotic as anyone else. Today they see it as a pejorative. That's a hell of a distance to run. It's a hell of a distance to run, and it's a hell of a problem when a country of two major parties has one party embracing the term and the other party disabusing itself of it, disinvesting itself from it, and using it as a shibboleth or a pejorative of political weaponry against the other party. It's a hell of a thing. All the while claiming that the political divide in this country is so great that we haven't seen such a thing since the Civil War. Well... Who's tearing that curtain? Who's tearing that veil? That's the question. That's the question that I think needs to be turned around on the left and on the Democrats. There's a bigger question in front of it. With such division, and when you think of all these institutions that hold these views, schools and universities, elementary, secondary schools and universities, entertainment, news media, uh print, journalism, publication houses, professional athletic associations, NBA, NFL, you name it. And, of course, the government. When they all hold these positions, and strongly so, is it something we can overcome? At what point is it a point of no return? Well, not there yet. Not there yet. But it's our duty to explain to the left in this country that they're getting us there. They're pushing us there. They're pushing us to a point of no return. And it's a point of no return over about the lowest thing one can imagine. Sowing hate for your own country. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He's also the host of his own radio show, heard here every Saturday morning, bright and early at 7 a.m., the word on wealth. I never miss it. John, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic today, Seth. So, too, are the markets, it looks like. You've been speaking about something that's generally beginning to look like a, um, a momentum here. 
And, uh, of course, it's always a question how long it will last. Uh, So how long will it last, John? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's a great question. If I had the answer to that, I'd be... uh, Well, is the predicate right? Does it look like the markets are... I I would say that... We've seen volatility, the volatility index, the VIX, as it's as it's known as, mm-hmm. uh, under under 20 right now. Which it's interesting because it's only been a couple of weeks since you know we've had some bank failures, mm-hmm. and that created a lot of concern on Wall Street and across the country, of course, and even the world. Um, but what we're seeing here, all of a sudden, is is that it seems to be something that's subsided. It's not necessarily front and center at this moment. Uh, even though we're having hearings up on on the hill about um, you know from some of these banks and the regulators, um, but it seems like the stock market has kind of settled in right now, uh, feeling good about interest rates. Maybe we're at a peak in rates, and if that's the case, that's going to be good for stocks. It's especially good for tech stocks, and that's what we saw leading today. Uh, they've been lagging over the past couple of weeks, uh, but we're starting to see a little bit of a rotation back into tech stocks, some real good momentum and some good volume in these stocks. Uh, so um, I don't know how long this would last, but it just seems at the moment right now we're, we're starting to build a little bit mo- of momentum in the markets, which is a good sign for investors. I'm go- Yes, it's a good sign and it's a good thing. Making money is and should be seen that way. There was another hearing that kind of caught my attention on Capitol Hill today on, on a related maybe a related note, and it was Senator Sanders' committee uh, going after Howard Schultz and Starbucks. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. it was interesting to hear Howard Schultz. People will remember he uh, made a made a bid for the presidency himself. And, um, and while he was accused of all forms of trust, uh, excuse me, union-busting illegality, right. um, they kept trying to turn the word billionaire against him as if it was a patrol. When did that become such a negative thing? But he, he, he finally stood up and, and defended it. He said, I grew up in federally sub- subsidized housing. My parents mm-hmm. never owned a home. I came from nothing. Yes, I have billions of dollars. I earned it. No one right. gave it to me. And I've shared it constantly with people of Starbucks, which is true. Yeah. They do earn more and have more benefits than most companies. And I think every state's minimum wage, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, they they have uh, thousands of of locations across the world now. Yeah. Uh, but of course, uh, you're right. They do pay a very good wage, and they've they've been a leader, uh, I think, in that area uh, for their workers for many many years. And uh, of course, people want more. Uh, if they can possibly get it, uh, and they want uh, more time off, they want uh, quicker, you know, um, you know, pay for maybe health issues that they might have, a variety of different things that they're asking for. But when they're trying to unionize, this is certainly something that uh, you know is not necessarily the best thing for a company, without question, in this free market that we have, because then the unions become strong and create uh, obviously. Uh, uh, pressure on companies maybe to change the way they do things. Uh, and so there, it, there's a balance here. And I think that um, they've been asking for the employees to come to them and have meetings, and they've created a 25-person panel mm-hmm. uh, to negotiate this uh, specifically between the company and the employees. But it just doesn't seem like they want to, you know, the employees want to go that direction. They're getting pressure uh, from the labor boards uh, here to. Uh, to push them in the direction of uh, allowing this uh, to happen, which would be to create, um, in this case, a union for the employees of Starbucks. And if that's the case, I would just say, you know, a cup of coffee is pretty expensive now at Starbucks, but prices are going up. Yeah, 
they'll go up further if yeah. it's unionized. Yeah. That's his worry. That's his concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may um, he may not be able to employ more people. He may be able to employ less people right. at uh, higher wages, and of course that being passed on to the consumers. So everything less, that made it a successful company yeah, will fall apart. Yeah, you, you know? get less quality, yeah. uh, you know, and then you also get um, you know less service, and so. There's a there's a, a delicate balance there, of course, and uh, unless there's proof that they're really, um, you know, treating their employees poorly, underpaying them and overworking them, well then maybe there's a cause for this. I haven't seen that yet. No, I'm not an expert in this area though, so you know I guess we have to wait and hear all the facts before we. See what the decision. Yeah, are. when I see two Democrats debate, it makes me, it makes it hard to take a, <laughs> take a side here. But for now, I'm on Howard Schultz's yeah. as opposed to uh, Bernie Sanders. I'll say that. Hey, thank you, John. Appreciate you it. You. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finra and Sipkin, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Nicely thank you, done, Seth. brother. Thank you, Bye brother. Man. God bless. Talk yes. to you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brett Johnson is a partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm here based in Phoenix, offices around the country. He's our constitutional and elections uh, expert. Uh, Brett, uh, thanks for joining us. Always good to have you, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. You betcha. I was thinking about something. I was talking with uh, Mike Bailey, you know Mike, uh, on air yesterday about his recent, um, he and his colleagues' recent victory against the city of Phoenix on forcing the city to do something about the chronic homeless problem here in what we colloquially or euphemistically call the zone. And it dawned on me in some other conversations, you know, with the city council, particularly uh, of, of, of one political direction, the governor's office of the same and the legislature just, you know, teetering by one vote majorities. I'm just wondering if litigation isn't going to have to be a strategy that many of us are going to have to keep appealing to over the next several years to obtain the kinds of things we normally otherwise constitutionally would through politics. It was de Tocqueville, right, in his Democracy in America said there's hardly any political question in the United States that sooner or later does not turn into a judicial question. Most of us didn't kind of like that, but maybe we're going to kind of have to avail ourselves of that. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on some of this. Yeah, and and, and it, it's definitely it, all we're doing um, from I guess from the conservative Republican side is do what has already been done for multiple years from a more democratic or, or liberal perspective. In, in when as the power structure shifts, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So this this has been everything you're talking about, Seth, has been going on for years, if not generations, mm-hmm. um, from from depending on who's in power. It's it's just one of those pendulum swings, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, clarity as the law is obviously the most important, but also sometimes to slow things down and 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 provide sometimes the the review maybe through the judicial process, also the discovery process to understand the consequences of an action before it's actually implemented. And again, both the left and the right have been doing this since you know the Roman era. Mm-hmm. So this is not necessarily new. It's just. Quite honestly, the Republicans and um, some conservative causes are, are late to the game. But one where they were pretty good what eventually led to the Dobbs decision, right? Yeah, right? So that has been going on for years, and that was very strategic litigation to tee it up at the exact right point where either the, uh, the circuit court and then the Supreme Court were in a position to evaluate it. So you're talking almost generations of a litigation strategy. 
You know, it's it's interesting. You, you yes, generations of litigation strategies, and one of the interesting things about the few uh, conservative oriented public interest law efforts or law firms like, well, law efforts and societies, whether it's Alliance Defending Freedom, let us say, or the Federalist Society, let us say. These are relatively new developments. I don't think the Federalist Society even existed before Ronald Reagan was president. I don't think it was founded until around 1981, 1982, whereas organizations like the ACLU were founded 60, 70, 80, and 100 years before that. And yet, you know, us coming our yeah, side. I'll, yeah, I'll, go ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah. I want to counter you. Yeah, there, yeah, good. Right? I mean, I think one of, one of the first organizations ever created was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, you know, and there, and some of those were, were were meant to push back and keep keep business in in um, you know friendly government regulation, and then joining lawsuits or or instigating lawsuits to ensure of uh, minimal regulation on um, from government overreach in certain okay. areas or yep. to protect different industries. Okay. So it has existed, but not in, in the context that you're talking about, where nonprofit, more social welfare groups, right. such as that NAACP, the ACLU, yep. um, are, are, are for that. So I, I think it, it just depends on the name you want to give it in, in, in uh, of the litigation um, strategy. Let's put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Let me try this on then. <laughs> Let me okay. try it this way. Let me try it slightly different. The things we're suing for, uh, the things we have sure. been engaging in litigation for, seem to be in order to restore constitutional rights, not create or invent them or amend the Constitution through regular uh, litigation uh, outside the regular amendment process. Let us say the suit against the city of Phoenix, it was in part injunctive, but it was also in part mandamus, which is to mandate that the government do something Uh, when it came to uh, using your example, the Dobbs decision. It was to restore uh, legislative and constitutional uh, firmaments of the traditional notion of public health and welfare being decided at the state level without an invented constitutional right that was invented by a system of federal court decisions, right? I mean, it's to restore a regular order when we sue, generally. That, that is correct. Rather than and amend also, through judicial lawsuit, rather than amend the Constitution. That, 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 that's, that's true. That's in, definitely um, amend, and, and amending basically means rephrasing, right? right? Because yes. Because obviously yeah. amendment process. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, but it's 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 basically kind of a, a different shift or a different interpretation. Yeah. But I think that more so than than any time in our history, though, is a pursuit. What you're talking about is a constitutional theory yeah. and a judicial philosophy of of plain language. What does the law actually say? And that has been different because everything, especially the Lochner era, you yeah. might remember that, yeah. um, where there was just basically. The judiciary trying to interpret law for the betterment of the public no, good versus no. as to what the law actually says. Right. And I think you're really seeing that as being the push for a lot of these new organizations. And quite honestly, the left has been doing it um, pretty well, too, in, in concentrating on that plain language because they've read the tea leaves as to where things are going. Mm-hmm. So, um, But what is interesting about Mike's case, and Steve Tolley, both great attorneys, um, was that the contradiction, it wasn't really a contradiction, because I think the Superior Court judge did a great job of, of, of weaving his way through, is that you had the federal courts coming out with one determination right. on dealing with a different issue, and then the, uh, the state court having to, how do I frame an order 
with the federal order, with the city ordinance, right. with the state constitution and law. And um, uh, Scott Blaney is the judge, a very good judge, a former judge advocate himself, army judge advocate, uh, did, a, did a really good job on that order. Yeah, that is interesting. It'll be interesting to see if it is going to be appealed on somewhat of a federal ground or something like that. But I think the order, it, yeah, it's, it struck me as fairly airtight and fairly well-reasoned, even within the contours of what that Ninth Circuit uh, Idaho decision was. Um, are exactly. you going to, yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, suing the city, suing the governor will probably be a business of ours for a while here is, is I guess the grand I, conclusion. I think, I, I think it was. And, and it's, uh, as we've, as we've said multiple times on the show, elections have consequences. Yeah, yeah. So the judiciary just got a little bit more busy. Yeah. Yeah, it's gotten a little yeah. bit more busy, and um, <laughs> it may be yet, and you may be, <laughs> you may be busier yet. <laughs> so I'm going to make sure to get no, to you I, early on Wednesdays. <laughs> save time for us, good. Brett. I, I save, love, save time for absolutely. us. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I, I love parachuting into these cases, especially when I'm not invited. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to be invited to a lot yeah. of these case parties. Brett Johnson from Snell and Wilmer, SWLaw.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You betcha. Talk to you soon. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Folks, how do you uh, rate the uh, Biden administration when it comes to the economy, the bank failings, the stock market volatility, the possible recession on the horizon? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you choose. And there is no loss of principal. If you need your money back at any time, your interest is compounded daily. You are paid monthly. There are no fees. We're talking about a secure collateralized portfolio with a high fixed interest rate up to 10.25%. Talk to my friends at Y Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them well. Honest, trustworthy folks, and you won't get a sales pitch. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I mentioned, you can get up to a 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Make sure and tell them I sent you. Uh, we talk often here about the uh, left-wing or progressive dialectic. Hugh Hallman mentioned it uh, yesterday uh, with us here, which is based on the notion of the Hegelian dialectic, or what later Marx, Karl Marx was known to have propounded, which was the um, dialectic materialism. It's a process that presents a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis. So the way we have characterized it is when we point something out, let's say something like critical race theory taking place in our schools, the first thing the progressive left will do is deny it. Then they will, once it becomes undeniable, defend it. And then once it um, isn't defended quite sufficiently enough, they will try to mandate it. I was uh, reading something on... Um, Twitter today, earlier, about the press secretary for Katie Hobbs, who has resigned as of this morning after she posted 
a woman uh, toting a video, a video of a woman toting guns, saying this is uh, effectively this is what transphobes will get you. Um, basically, violent ideation on behalf of trans rights is what it was. This is the same press secretary who put out a tweet quoting uh, uh, quoting a, um, a, a, a terrorist on the lam in, in Cuba with a million dollar finder's fee on her head from the FBI, Kata Shakur. And um, someone posted the progression of liberal argumentation on a subject over time. This is not happening and you are crazy. It may be happening, but only by a few individuals who are not representative. It is happening, but purely naturally, as there is no conspiracy to accomplish this. It is happening, but who cares? It is happening and it's a good thing. It happened, it was positive, and I can name the leaders of the movement. Yeah, that's an expansion of the progressive dialectic. Well done, whoever this anonymous person is who posted it. I'm Seth Leapson. A lot more coming right up.